Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome to this Global Council podcast. Today we're talking nuclear energy and asking, are we on the cusp of a nuclear renaissance? My name is Jeffrey Norris. I'm a senior advisor at Global Council and relevant to today's conversation, I have a long history of interest and involvement in the UK's nuclear energy policy. I'm joined today by some of the sharp minds in Global Council's growing team working on energy and decarbonisation, looking at the politics and economics and for investors and energy companies looking at what are the political and regulatory risks and opportunities. So welcome to Stephanie from our Washington office, to Saskia from London and to Giovanni from our Brussels office. To start, Stephanie, can you set the scene on why we are seeing renewed interest in nuclear. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. It's morning here in the US, and it's great to be with all of you from Global Council. I think a couple dominoes have fallen into place, reigniting interest in nuclear power. We have a lot of states and countries and companies pledging to get to net zero carbon emissions. And those phrases have really become commonplace, but it belies the difficulty in achieving those goals. Nuclear power is a standout given its high output, its ability to really generate a lot of megawatt hours of electricity around the clock, zero carbon. And I think for those reasons, it's become a really important part of the climate solution set. And then the global interest in nuclear power is heightened with the Russian aggression on Ukraine, which obviously we've had recent events of Russian Gazprom shutting gas lines off to Poland and Belarus. And even before that, we've got the gas bans, the petrochemical bans against Russia. And all of that is tightening gas supplies, raising prices. This morning, I checked before our podcast, uh, natural gas spot prices in the US were up to $8 for MMBTU. And we have not seen those prices since 2008. Given uh, horizontal or hydrofracking, we've seen low gas prices in the US. I think there was an idea they would remain under $3 per MMBTU in perpetuity. And so this has really scrambled wholesale energy markets in the US because when you have high gas prices, that translates directly into high prices from natural gas generators, which are now the dominant source of electricity in many of the wholesale markets. So all of a sudden, you see nuclear existing nuclear generators um, highly competitive in, in wholesale markets. So there are a lot of a confluence of events, I think, raising the specter of how important nuclear power can be uh, to the future. Thanks for that, Stephanie. Can I ask you specifically about the United States? What measures, steps are the federal and state governments taking to support nuclear? at the moment. Uh, Sure. And it's been an interesting tale. The first signs of state support for nuclear power plants came out of the the state of New York in 2016, where they embraced a clean energy standard. It's a lot like a renewable portfolio standard where they offered price per megawatt hour of output for retaining the power at their nuclear generators because they knew mathematically, like simple fifth grade math, they were not going to meet their decarbonization goals if they had to shut down their nuclear power plants, 
even though they did decide to shut down Indian Point, one of them, you know, they likened it to like a reverse carbon tax. Instead of charging per carbon ton, they were giving money per megawatt hour of zero carbon energy. So that caught on in states that wanted to retain the nuclear power fleets like Illinois, uh, New Jersey and Connecticut, because when your nuclear power plant is exposed in the wholesale energy market, it had a touch a tough time competing against natural gas power plants when when gas prices were low. And now the federal government in the Infrastructure Investment in Jobs Act that passed last November, that was a big uh, bipartisan effort here, that also authorized $6 billion to the Department of Energy to, to help the struggling nuclear power plants in wholesale markets. So we're shifting from that burden being rested in the states to the federal government. Uh, so that's definitely a new development and the Department of Energy, which is something I wrote about in the blog, started its first solicitation uh, in April. So they wasted no time trying to get the support out into the plants in the states where it's needed. Stephanie, are these measures to prevent plants closing, but are they also taking steps to help new build? They are. Um, I think there, there's been a long line of support at the Department of Energy for new technologies, but this last tranche of funding in, in the IIJA came across, I think, $2.4 billion for new demonstrations, which will really help get some of these ideas across the finish line. And, and then and, and once they're operational, you know, become commercially available. So the UK experience has been that nobody builds uh, in liberalized wholesale energy markets. Nobody builds or generating markets. Nobody builds a plant without state support. They can't, they, they can't just take the market price. Now, the high gas price helps the relative competitiveness of nuclear, but nobody's going to build a plant for 60 years without kind of intervention. Or that is the European experience, I think. I would say that's probably pretty similar here. We did have two plants being built in the US earlier, and those plants, one of the plants actually went offline and did not get built. That was a summer reactor in South Carolina. It's twin reactors, Vogel 3 and 4, I think, are being built by Southern Company. Um, those are the AP-1000. Those will be the first new power plants built in our country in maybe 35 years. So I think we did have an atrophy of forgetting how to build these plants because it had been so long. But I do think that the current, you know, th those plants will be operational. There's a couple operational already in China. And I do feel like that workforce is ready once those plants are operational, which will be soon to turn their attention in and help with the ability of making SMRs a reality. But you're right, there needs to be additional support. They can't, they, you can't build them in wholesale markets yet on a competitive basis. Okay, one last question, Stephanie. So uh, on this side of the Atlantic, we look across to the US and see very divisive politics, um, which no one seems to be able to agree on anything. On nuclear, does, is there a support across the aisle between Republicans and Democrats? Well, well, there is, but I suspect it's for different reasons. I mean, a lot of our existing nuclear power plants are in bright red districts. And by that, I mean highly re re Republican districts. And they employ a lot of people. A traditional nuclear power plant can employ between like 700 and 900 
employees on the spot, but also thousands if you consider all the secondary jobs created by these plants. And Republicans are keen to save those jobs and that important tax base, whereas you see the Democrats looking at the massive source of zero carbon electrons coming from those plants. So I think you do have support across the aisle, perhaps for different reasons. And this is also, it's an oversimplification, but the motivation might be different, but there there is rare support across the aisle. Thanks for that. Stephanie, you, you made a passing reference to SMRs, and I want to turn to SMRs next. So they're the kind of the new kid on the nuclear block. Here in the UK, there's lots of enthusiasm for SMRs from Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, that enthusiasm is linked to the hope that uh, we'll have an SMR national champion in Rolls-Royce who have got an SMR program, which has actually a US company, Constellation, is one of the investors in that program, as is BNF Capital and the Qataris through the QIA. Saskia, I want to bring you in. What are SMRs and what's to like about them? Thanks, Jeffrey. So SMR stands for Small Modular Reactor. They're essentially nuclear fission reactors that are, as their name suggests, smaller than conventional reactors. They're roughly the size of about two football pitches and typically have an electrical output of less than 300 megawatts, which is about enough to power roughly a million homes. In terms of what's to like, they are designed to be smaller, cheaper, supposedly safer, and more versatile than their larger counterparts. So given their much smaller footprint, they can be sited in places where larger nuclear plants can't be. And also the prefabricated units of SMRs can be manufactured, then shipped or popped on lorries and installed on site, making them generally assumed to be more affordable to build than large reactors, which are custom uh, designed for particular locations, which often leads to construction delays. So essentially, SMRs are assumed to offer savings in cost and construction and construction time, and they can be deployed sort of incrementally to match increasing energy demands in whichever country is interested in developing them. Saskia, can you give us a quick measure of the difference in cost? So one of the kind of big nuclear plants, so the UK is... EDF, the French uh, nuclear company, is building uh, a new nuclear plant in the UK at the moment, which is going to cost 20 billion plus. What are Rolls-Royce and other promoters of SMRs saying would be the capital cost of a new SMR plant? So comparatively, I think Hinkley C, which is the large EDF plant in the UK, is predicted to cost around 23 billion. And Rolls-Royce SMRs are comparison projected to cost 2.2 billion each for the first four to five. And once production costs are defrayed, I think they're predicted to cost around 1.8 billion per reactor to manufacture and assemble after that. And they're aiming to build about 20 of them across the UK. About 10 small reactors is the same as building one large nuclear reactor. So the significance of that is EDF's experience and the experience of others is that to raise 23 billion is a really, really difficult thing to do. Now, the UK, and we'll discuss this in a minute, is changing its policy regime to make it easier to raise that kind of money. But the capital cost of big nuclear is quite a an obstacle, quite a barrier to nuclear bu- new 
you build. Can I ask you, Saskia, to tell us a little bit about current UK government policy? So in the UK, we had a big policy statement on energy security uh, in which nuclear was centre stage. But can you say a bit more both about the government's aspirations now on nuclear? I think it set a target for how much nuclear, what share of UK electricity it wants nuclear to be generating in 2050. But also, what are the policy steps that the UK is taking to translate that um, aspiration uh, into reality? So in the energy security strategy released last month, uh, the UK government committed to having at least a quarter of Britain's electricity provided by nuclear power by 2050, with assuming that SMRs are going to play a leading role in this. Notably, last year, they also granted Rolls-Royce just over 200 million of funding to get their, speed up their development of the first British mini reactors. But they have also recognised that further funding is needed. In terms of policy sets, they've just set up a new Great British nuclear body to help encourage both large and smaller scale nuclear through the investment stages. Uh, they're also aiming to set up, a, like I think, eight more large nuclear sites in the next 20 or so years, so that it's it's quite ambitious. So the other very big change that we're seeing in the UK, going back to my earlier question to Stephanie about uh, government support in the US, so in the United Kingdom, we're introducing a regulatory asset-based system. So effectively, from the moment construction starts, uh, some of that cost gets met by consumers. By doing this, to very significantly reduce the cost of capital for building new nuclear, and on the sums it's using, I mean, it reduces the cost very, very considerably. And this model of a RAB is what it hopes will uh, lead EDF to be able to follow on from Hinkley with a new plant at Sizewell. Stephanie, to bring you back into the, the conversation, SMRs are big in the US as well? As well, There is a, a lot of development of SMR technology in, in the U.S. I think one of the first on the block to get approval from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is required, is a new scale modular technology. And they have contracts with the Department of Energy in, in Idaho to start a pilot and also looking to expand their contracts, which they have done with rural electric cooperatives. And then there's also TerraPower, which is using a molten salt as its coolant. And that is one of the SMR technologies that is part of this new coal to nuclear paradigm that was announced by the, the governor of Wyoming, along with Senator Barrasso. And I only mention that because he's a Republican senator from Wyoming. He is also the ranking member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, along with Jennifer Granholm, our Department of Energy. And coal to nuclear is interesting because they're thinking about putting an SMR right in the infrastructure of a decommissioned coal plant so that you can retain a lot of those elements and all of the transmission, which can be really hard to build in the U.S. for new renewables. So SMRs are picking up. You know, again, we're sort of waiting for the technology to be ready on the street. But otherwise, I think there is enthusiasm on this side of the Atlantic for SMRs as well. Saskia, just to come back to you, when does Rolls-Royce 
think that it might be able to build, get running an SMR in the UK. Do they have a target date? They recently released a statement suggesting that their first SMR will be up and running by 2029. But there's been a lot of skepticism about this from industry watchers, as SMRs have been in development in many other countries for decades without a plant to date delivering grid-priced energy. However, we'll have to wait and see. We will wait and see. Uh, So one of the the challenges facing Rolls-Royce in the United Kingdom, but also NewGen or any of the American potential vendors of S. Uh, SMRs is they will need to get regulatory clearance in the UK. And that can be often quite protracted. I mean, it is necessarily rigorous, but can often lead to it taking longer than sometimes the promoters of projects uh, hope and expect. I want to now swing effortlessly over to continental Europe, uh, my colleague Giovanni uh, in Brussels. And I want to ask you, Giovanni, a question. Does Putin's attack on the Ukraine change the outlook for nuclear in Europe? What's, what's your thinking? Thank you for your question, Jeffrey. So I think that as of today, Russia's invasion of Ukraine does not seem to have significantly changed the outlook for nuclear uh, in Europe. In other words, we have not seen policymakers really announcing massive investments plans in nuclear in the wake of the war as a consequence of the war. So also, and maybe most importantly, the European Commission, for instance, barely mentioned nuclear in its Repower EU communication, which is a document released in March outlining the EU strategy to eliminate dependence on uh, Russian fossil fuel before 2030. So the document has been much more, for instance, on the role of uh, renewables permitting LNG, while nuclear was not really uh, mentioned. I think that this could be for a number of reasons, but ideally the Commission wants to avoid touching upon a very political controversial topic, which is nuclear, trying to fix another serious crisis, which is the Ukrainian one. So overall, it seems also that after the last winter's discussion around the inclusion of nuclear uh, under the EU taxonomy, the whole nuclear topic lost a bit of momentum, which is ironic. Uh, as many people back then uh, believe that taxonomy would have boosted investment in this technology. With that said, I think that there is no reason to think that the situation cannot evolve. Uh, Russia recently halted uh, gas supply to Bulgaria and Poland. So this is likely, for instance, to accelerate uh, the Polish plan to start up national nuclear industry. It remains to be seen what role France and Germany uh, will play, both are major countries with great political influence and different views on the matter. On France and Germany, so Macron flagged before his re-election a shift back to a very pro-nuclear position. Now, France has, if it's going to realise its ambition for new nuclear build, France is going to have to solve some quite tricky financial problems with EDF. But there's a very, very clear commitment now of Macron re-elected as president a very clear commitment to new nuclear build in France. But what about in neighbouring Germany? Stephanie, in the blog that we're going to be publishing alongside this podcast, raises the question about whether events in Ukraine will lead to a rethink in Germany. Do you see any signs of a rethink in Germany uh, on its exit from nuclear? Maybe I will start answering your first question on France. As you rightly pointed out, EDF is not really in a healthy financial situation as of today. 
So the government had to inject more than 2 billion euros last winter. Uh, and also the whole nuclear fleets, fleets of EDF really had to face some uh, maintenance issue, which heavily reduced the nuclear power output. So the first question is if EDF will be able to deliver on Macron's uh, nuclear agenda. Just before the elections, the French president announced the intention to increase the, electric, the electricity outlook output of France by 60% uh, more than today. So this is the first big thing. On Germany, I think that there are two aspects. In the short term, the impact of the war is unlikely really to change Germany's attitude towards nuclear. Also because just replacing small friction of Russian gas with uh, nuclear is not that easy. For instance, in Germany, we have a lot of boilers using gas. And regardless of the electricity that you use, that amount of energy can just cannot be electrified. There are many other issues in the short term in Germany. There is lack of nuclear fuel as of today. That because Germany's phase out of nuclear has been a very long process. So no one was planning to extend uh, the operating life of the fleet beyond 2022. And overall, the idea of phasing out nuclear uh, is pretty mainstream among all the main parties of the coalition. So it seems now a very sensitive issue to be rediscussed. On the long term, however, with a different government under the pressure of EU's decarbonization policies, we might maybe to think about the partial rethinking. But I think just that the current government, this is highly, highly uh, unlikely. This is obviously something that we'll all be watching closely. And the next steps in Germany's energy policy will await what happens about gas, and it may well evolve. In reality, it's quite likely that the Germans will continue to consume quite a lot of nuclear electricity, but it will be produced in France and in other countries uh, and exported into Germany. So Germany's nuclear exit may be less than build. I want to now come to sort of loop back to our starting point, which was whether or not we are going to have a nuclear renaissance. We have to an extent been here before uh, and nuclear has two things which I'd be interested in getting the three of yours views on. One of which is that nuclear sometimes disappoints, or quite often disappoints. To pick up on a point that Stephanie made, nuclear plants under construction have a fairly consistent record of being late and more costly. This time round, does the arrival of SMRs kind of begin to really address that problem? Uh, if you have a big, consistent program of construction of large plants, does that make it more reliable? I'd be interested on people's views on that. The other thing I am very interested in is, and Stephanie refers to this uh, in her blog, which is, for some people, there are big fears about nuclear uh, and fears about pits of Three Mile Island, of Chernobyl, which has again been recently in the news, and Fukushima in Japan. Uh, is there evidence that the public is less concerned than it has been? I'm going to turn first to, to Saskia. I mean, what's the evidence in the UK on public opinion about nuclear. So although government polling in recently conducted by BASE does suggest that the British public generally support nuclear two to one, there are also many people that are undecided or unsure. And, you know, these majorities may well be turned if there is bad press concerning nuclear. 
especially considering SMRs and the future, the technology, it's new and it's untested and it's unknown. So there is an extra potential fear factor associated with that with the public, especially considering the fact that there are talks about speeding up the regulation and testing process with the ONR, which is the Office for Nuclear Regulation, in order to get these designs built quicker. There is a chance that the British public will sort of, will, there will be a greater fear over whether the technology is safe or not, especially with so much talk of nuclear in the news at the moment. Stephanie, is there any polling in the US on what actually voters think about nuclear? You know, there are some concerns about our policy around dealing with spent nuclear fuel uh, waste. And clearly Chernobyl caught the world's attention. And then there was, um, I think, a Netflix series that, you know, kind of reignited fears on it. So I, I'm sure it's mixed in the US too. But but as far as your broader question about, you know, will the will this renaissance actually deliver? I mean, I'm hopeful because I think it's a really important part of the decarbonization puzzle. I, I really do. And I do think that there are so many different vendors now competing to to produce SMRs that that usually does help with products coming to market faster and being better products. And by dint of being modular, there is a this idea, and Saskia mentioned this as well, is like once, once you're able to fabricate these modules sufficiently, then it should be a matter of, you know, nth of a kind being able to refabricate and then and then get them delivered and set them up. So in theory, this should be simpler than even the last, you know, AP 1000 version of a traditional nuclear power plant. Um, but like you said, let's let's wait and see. I, I think it's important to, to reach our climate goal. So I'm hopeful, but a lot of other new technologies coming online too to help us get there. Giovanni, anything on the sort of politics? Yeah, I think that... And public opinion? Yeah, I think that uh, it really depends on which countries in Europe you're looking at. So those countries such as France, uh, which have a very long history of nuclear power, then public opinion is really in favor. And the same is quite true for some countries just like the Nordics in general, so Finland, or when you consider Spain. That said, you have public opinion really critical towards nuclear, especially in Italy, which abandoned its uh, nuclear program back in the 80s. And since then, there have, there have not been, there is no rethinking of that. So uh, I think that public opinion in Europe is maybe less concerned than uh, what many people might think, but it really depends on the country you are considering. Uh, on a final note, when we talk about SMR in Europe, I think this idea has been much more successful in the US and in the UK. French President Macron, before being re-elected, mentioned that he would have liked to see at least two SMR in France uh, as a pilot, but it seems that as of today, it's not really the focus of the uh, French nuclear politics. So Giovanni, you're making a very important point there, which is a, no a number of very important points, but one in particular, which is actually in Europe, uh, different uh, member states of the European Union take very different positions on nuclear. Uh, and those different positions of government often reflect different historical experiences and different politics. And it's not easy when we're talking about nuclear renaissance, we always have to go back to putting it in the context of individual na nation states. I want to thank the three of you uh, very much indeed for your contributions. Anything else you want to add before I wind us up for today? I take that as no. So I, 
I thank you enormously. My own take on nuclear is that it has a lot of issues. Uh, It often disappoints in terms of cost overruns. Uh, There are big issues about how you support it. There is, as Stephanie uh, mentioned, there are significant issues about what you do with long-term nuclear waste. All of that said, I can't see us Uh, reaching net zero without having nuclear as part of the energy mix. And therefore, I do think we are entering into a new chapter of the nuclear story uh, in uh, certainly in the UK, in many member states in the European Union and in the United States. Saskia and Stephanie have written blogs, picking up on some of the points that they have raised today. Our colleagues in the Singapore office uh, have also written about uh, nuclear developments in Asia, and I commend those blogs. There's lots of stuff, good stuff on the GC website, which I hope people will take a look at. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.